are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the Gospel of St. Luke. Dr. George has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering the following three topics. The corrupt judge and the importunate widow. Second, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And third, Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the chapters of the third gospel from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. The very first question of this lesson begins by asking what the point or the lesson of the parable is that Jesus tells and which St. Luke records at the beginning of chapter 18 of his gospel. In the very first verse of chapter 18, he tells us essentially what the lesson is, writing, Then Jesus told them a parable about the need to pray continually and never lose heart. Now, essentially, this parable then is about our need to persevere in prayer, our need to be persistent in prayer and not give up. But the parable has a few interesting details or twists in it. The parable is about a corrupt judge, an unscrupulous judge. Jesus himself says that he was a corrupt judge, that he neither feared God nor had respect for people, for men. And an importunate widow who wants justice, who is persistent in going to this judge and asking, since he has the power and authority to decide the case, to to give her the justice that is due her. And so Jesus says, There was a judge in a certain town who had neither fear of God nor respect for anyone. And in the same town, there was also a widow who kept coming to him and saying, I want justice from you against my enemy. For a long time, he refused. He refuses because he doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about the widow. He doesn't care about truth, having compassion on her. But at last he says to himself, Even though I have neither fear of God nor respect for any human person, I must give this widow her just rights since she keeps pestering me. In other words, he says, Otherwise she will come and she will do violence to me. She will slap me in the face. Now he may not be a just judge, but he has enough practical reason, enough common sense in him to know that he needs to act on behalf of this widow, first of all, because he's, he's sick and tired of her. He's tired of having her constantly, persistently plead for justice. And in a sense, he considers her a bother to him. But the other thing is this. In her hunger for justice, he is afraid that she will rise up and do some kind of violence to him. We see this happening in the world all the time. When justice is withheld from people and they suffer, under oppression and poverty, sometimes their frustration breaks out in violent protest. For example, we have wars because of these kinds of things. Now, there is a way in which we can persistently plead justice peaceably, lawfully. We have to recall that we are made in justice. We are made for justice. And God has indeed promised us justice, Although 
the fulfillment of justice is not always, in fact rarely, do we have it fulfilled in this life. We go through life and even when we have just judges or people in positions of power who do strive to mete out justice to the people, their justice is always imperfect. Part of the key to understanding this parable is to recall that there is only one just judge, only one person who can mete out perfect, satisfactory justice, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the just judge. Justice is meted out by God. So, in a sense, all justice in the world is imperfect. All justice is going to be less than satisfactory to us. Now, we constantly in life, in natural life, we have recourse to the normal means in seeking justice. And we're speaking here not only of judges, we're speaking of governors of states, of senators and congressmen, presidents of countries, principals and superintendents of schools, managers of businesses, bosses at work. So there are all these people that, in a sense, are given this capacity, this responsibility, to keep things fair and equitable for the people. Everyone suffers injustice in this life to some form or degree. We all suffer injustice, and we all seek justice. And in fact, there are times, perhaps we've done it ourselves, but we know in the world that there are people who become so persistent in seeking the fulfillment of justice that they can take months of their lives, years of their lives, they can become so consumed that they give their whole life over to seeking justice in a particular case, or in a particular instance that they will not be satisfied, they will not have peace, they will not be happy until someone in some earthly form decides justice for them. Now Jesus is speaking to this thing in us, and it is as if he is saying, We naturally seek justice and persistently seek justice in this world, and and that's according to our nature. But the justice we should persistently be pleading, the cause we should place before the judge, is through our persistent prayer of God in heaven, because only he can fulfill all justice. At the end of time, all injustices are going to be made right in God, but we will not see that until all things come to their completion in Jesus Christ. So, Jesus goes on to say, do you notice what the unjust judge has to say? He uses his practical reason. He does something reasonable in dealing with this widow. And he says, now, will not God see justice done to his elect? The elect are the children of God those who live in God and God in them, those who are the holy ones of God, those who are on the path to salvation in this life. So we number among those elect. We besiege heaven with our plea for justice. And in that plea of justice is is a plea for peace and harmony in our lives, balance, order, equity, holiness, all those things that touch upon the virtue of justice. And we can seek justice on earth, but it is God to whom we should have recourse. Jesus is saying, God cannot fail us. 
earthly forms of justice and authority and power are ultimately always going to fail us in some way or form because there is no perfect justice in this life. We can seek them. We should seek justice, and especially on behalf of our neighbor, those who are treated unjustly. But we should not seek any kind of justice on earth apart from beseeching God who can bring about what is true and right. And Jesus says, God will see justice done for his elect. God cannot fail us. It's not possible. God is just, and he creates us in justice and creates us for justice. He cannot possibly fail us. This would be contrary to him. But Jesus says, if, if his elect keep calling on him day and night, even though he still delays to help them. Now that is very intriguing because in a strict sense, there is no delay with God. Strictly speaking, God doesn't delay. God is the eternal now. God is outside time. God has created time as his plan for the created order and his plan for the order of redemption. Time is a gift given to us. The Jewish physicist Einstein in the 20th century said, in truth, God created time so that everything would not happen at once. Because when God thinks a thought in his mind, that thought, his will, is the same as act. Thought, will, act, plan, it's all one with God. It's instantaneous. But he creates time, and he wills that his plan unfold according to the order of time. And we experience that plan as delay. We look at God and the unfolding of his plan as an awful lot of delay. Jesus is aware of that. He has taken our humanity to himself. He knows this. He's teaching us this. He's helping us. We experience the fulfillment of justice as nothing but a lot of delay. But remember what St. Peter says in his letter. He says, with God, a thousand years are like a day. And a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a blink for God. And a day is so full of the completion of God's plan in Christ that if we could see all that God accomplishes in a day, we would see that day as an equivalent of a thousand years. So he reminds us, he says, God is just. He has promised justice and he will fulfill it, even though he still delays to help his people. So Jesus is asking us to consider this delay of God. At the beginning of time, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit together had, have a single plan that was known by all three persons of the Trinity because they are three persons who are one God. So the Father in sending the Son to earth is carrying forward, is accomplishing that plan that was in a sense decided upon at the beginning. It's even difficult to speak of these things because God God didn't just begin existing at one point. He is from all eternity. So even to say that God decided at one point It's difficult for us to speak about God except sort of in human, earthly terms and terms of time itself. It's not that he decided as a past action or at a certain point in time. 
it's part of the mystery of God. It's beautiful. It's profound. But with the fulfillment of all things in Christ, once Christ has fulfilled the Paschal mystery and he has ascended into heaven, we continue to accomplish in Christ the will of God, that plan of God which is fulfilled in him, but carried forward until the end of time. And we continue to experience this delay. The widow really is symbolic of the church. She's symbolic of the elect, the bride of Christ, for whom the bridegroom is gone, is gone from earth. The church, the widow is a symbol of the church. There are prayers that the church has persistently prayed for decades, for centuries, for millennia. We have prayed for nearly 400 years for the reunion of all Christians. Daily, the church prays for the reunion of all Christians. For a thousand years, a millennium, the church has been praying for the perfect communion of the East and West Church, which are the universal church, but there are a few distinctions that separate us, that separate us very slightly in theology. And the church for a thousand years has been praying this. We see it as delay. It still hasn't happened yet. For 2,000 years, the church has been praying that the Jews would come into the church and accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Ever since Pentecost, this has been the prayer of the church. And the church prays it at the Easter Vigil every year. God is still delaying. But the delay of God, what we experience as a delay of God, is the fullness of his plan. If we could see what God is doing in this, we would be completely satisfied with the delay we experience in God carrying out his plan. This is why Jesus goes on to say, I promise you, he, referring to God, will see justice done to them, and done speedily. It's the speed of God now. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find any faith on earth? Now that's the question. Jesus is referring not only to his second coming in power and glory, but there is a way in which we all experience the coming of Christ on the day we die. We encounter Christ. Christ comes, and the question is, Jesus poses to us, will he find faith in us? Will he find the same faith, the same hope in the prayer that we have prayed all of our life? The problem, and the church explains this in the catechism, in the section of the life of prayer, that the most common and most hidden form of temptation, the thing that militates against our progress and perseverance in prayer, is our lack of faith. It's our lack of faith. And what happens is that after so long working towards something, praying for something, we finally just give up. We treat it as if God didn't answer our prayer. We treat it as if we wasted our time. We finally get tired of it, of the petition, and we just set it aside. After we've prayed weeks maybe, months maybe, maybe even several years, there are things that some, the saints, and certainly the church, prays her whole life long. She dies with those prayers on her lips and in her heart. Why do we complain of not being heard? The church speaks of this and says we should actually be very astonished at the very fact that we complain at not being heard. Now, when we 
pray to God if things seem to be going pretty normally. If we are praising God, if we are thanking Him, if we are just talking to Him about the usual matters of the day. The church points out that we usually are not particularly concerned about whether our prayers are pleasing to God or acceptable to Him. As long as things seem to be going all right, we don't care that much whether what we're praying and how we're praying is pleasing or acceptable to God. On the other hand, we demand results to our petitions. We would like to think we don't demand results, but the very fact that we leave off praying certain petitions, the very fact that we get discouraged, that we go through periods where we just stop praying for a while because we're tired of it, we're not getting the consolations, it's this sense that we're not quite getting the results, and the tempter is constantly whispering to us, you know, what good does it do? What good does it do? Nothing's changing. Everything is the same. When we leave off with that, what it actually points to, and we may not recognize it right away, is our lack of faith. This is why perseverance in the life of prayer demands humility, a humble vigilance of heart in faith, so that even when things aren't going particularly well, that it's God that we trust and that we know He is just and He will answer our prayers and He will answer them in a way that exceed or surpass what we ever could could have hoped for. St. Augustine says, God wills that our desire should be exercised in prayer so that we may be able to receive what God is prepared to give. There are many things in our life and even in the life of the church that God is giving. He has already determined we are to have. But prayer transforms the heart. It transforms the way we think, the way we see things. It transforms faith, hope, and love even. We grow in faith, hope, and love. Especially when we have to pray in in dryness, in desolation, in darkness. But we persevere in that. And so our faith actually deepens and grows and is purified. So something happens to us always when we pray. There is nothing equivalent to prayer, the church tells us. Prayer is so powerful that what is impossible, the church teaches, prayer makes possible. What is difficult, prayer makes easy. Not only does it call down grace from heaven, but something happens to us that changes us and how we approach life itself. Evagrius Ponticus, who is a 4th century monk, one of the Desert Fathers, wrote this, Do not be troubled if you do not immediately receive from God what you ask Him. For he desires to do something even greater for you while you cling to him in prayer. So often when we look back at things in hindsight, we see that God answered a prayer. We were praying a year ago, five years ago, and maybe we left off praying that particular petition. But we see that, oh, indeed, God answered that, and he answered it in a mysterious and far better way. God always answers our prayers perfectly according to his wisdom. We have to remember what God speaks to Israel through the prophet Isaiah. It's true, of course, for all of time. He says, before you have started speaking, I have heard you. And before you have stopped speaking, I have answered you. That's God in the eternal now. And so time is, time is a beautiful gift to us. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George 
of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Luke from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be continuing The Corrupt Judge and the Importunate Widow, and then she'll be moving into The Pharisee and the Tax Collector. And now, back to Dr. George. A number of the catechism readings for this lesson are drawn from the fourth pillar of the catechism, which is on prayer. And the first half of that deals with the life of prayer in general, the second half with the Our Father, and the Church walks through the petitions of the Our Father and speaks of the meaning and how they apply to life and so on, since the Our Father is the prayer our Lord himself gave us. But I would encourage you to, at some point, take different chapters from that first section of Part 4 and to just read them. Go before the Blessed Sacrament and read them. It's beautiful how the Church teaches us first to recognize difficulties and temptations in prayer, the trials of the life of prayer, and how to understand them and how to respond to them and how to grow in prayer. Prayer is essential for growth in holiness. Prayer is essential for our sanctification. It has an important role or part in the work that God is doing in us and our response, our collaboration with God in that very same work. Our battle with prayer, as the Church tells us, has to confront what we experience as failure in prayer. Now, this is what the Church says, has to confront what we experience as failure in prayer. We can experience things as failure in prayer, just as we experience the delay of God, and what we experience is not the reality. What we need is discernment from the Holy Spirit, so that when we experience dryness in prayer, we can discern whether It is something that comes from the Holy Spirit because God is purifying our heart. He is purifying our faith. Or, if there is fault with us, we have become lax in our prayer life, lax in spiritual exercises. We have become less vigilant. We have become careless of heart. If we become unfaithful in our prayer life, we will encounter dryness in prayer. In fact, we won't even want to pray anymore. We won't feel called to pray, and when we do enter into prayer, we will just feel our heart's not there. We will feel that our heart is separated or distanced from God. Thoughts of the spiritual things, even to meditate on Scripture, for example, can seem dry to us. It's as if we just don't have the consolation. It can be, of course, due to personal failure in prayer, and all we do then is we just simply, simply and humbly turn back to God. As the prophet Jeremiah tells us, look back. When we find ourselves in a crisis, says, look back and see what road was a good road for you before. He says, and then go back and take that road again. Or the prophet Baruch tells us, if by your will you have failed, he says, then use that same will and work ten times as hard and re-embrace the mystery. And he says, and you will find rest for your soul. So the dryness can be through personal fault, but the dryness can be from God himself. He sometimes leads us in prayer through consolation. He enlightens us. He enkindles our heart with love. We, we feel prayer is sweet for us. Prayer is desirable. We enjoy prayer. 
we want to spend more time in prayer. God will often lead us a certain period of time like this, only to later, once he establishes us in prayer, and we become comfortable with prayer, then he takes us off milk, and he begins to feed us solid food, to use the analogy of St. Paul. And what happens then is that we have to learn to pray when we feel we are not being fed with consolations, with the sweet things of the Lord. Because the question is, are we willing to pray because God is God? Because it's, it's right and fitting. It's good for the health of our soul. God commands prayer of us. It requires a lot more of the person to pray perseveringly when, when there's no consolation and even no, no direct enlightenment. We pray in darkness, in desolation. God allows this for his own glory, a mystery which we will not understand until the next life. But however he guides each individual soul is also according to the plan for that soul. In everything, though, God is glorified. St. Paul of the Cross, for example, the founder of the Passionate Order, those who write about him based on his letters and testimony of his spiritual director and so on, they say that he, he went his whole life, he worked and prayed without any consolation, that his life was filled with dryness, darkness, the darkness of faith, with suffering. And he persevered faithfully. Imagine that if, at the end of time, we see that a person was faithful to his or her prayer life without consolations, that it was a struggle. It was a hard struggle for them. Think of how that glorifies God. It will amaze us, as opposed to the person who is filled with consolations and remain faithful to prayer. God is glorified. That soul is glorified because of that. It's a beautiful thing and a beautiful example to us in the life of the church. Distractions are one of the other key forms of temptation, one of the battles of prayer. Everyone has distractions. It's part of our nature. God has, in giving us a mind, we have this powerhouse. We have a mind like unto God's mind. It's a mind that is active. It's powerful. It knows. It understands. It has wisdom. It can think inductively and deductively. And it's difficult for us to even stop the mind. We know the mind has so much power that if at night we are running our mind, grinding away at something, the mind won't even allow the body to rest or sleep. The mind is so powerful. It keeps us alert or awake. But the problem, the battle in prayer, is that when we enter into the peace, the rest of God, we must leave the things of the world and they continue to come in on us as we enter into prayer and as we begin to pray. It's as if all these things, seemingly urgent things, begin to vie for priority, our attention. Everything wants our attention. And these are what distractions are. It's part of our human nature. All the saints had distractions, too. We become simple. We're humble about it. We don't get upset by it. But we have to fight the good fight to the end by simply flicking off distractions like we would brush away a fly, as the saints say, And we do it a thousand times if we have to. Push them away, push them away. We don't engage them, however, because that's where the tempter wants us to go. Because then we may be sitting in church, but we're out living in the world. If we allow our, if we immerse ourselves in all the matters of the world and the matters of the day. 
So we have to simply push them aside. Distractions aren't sinful. It's just part of our nature. But they do teach us something about ourselves. They teach us, as the church says, about our attachments, about the things that consume us. The things that consume our mind, that we think about all the time, it's what the heart is full of, in a sense. And so God gives us graces of self-knowledge, even through our distractions. Although it would be a mistake to spend all our time in prayer thinking about the distractions so that we can figure out what our attachments are. We can do that quickly or later on. But we are to be in dialogue with God about the matters of holiness and our life in the Lord. All we have to do, quite simply, is to decide for God at every point in time. We decide again for God. We decide again for God. We do this thousands of times in our life. As St. Gregory of Nazianzen says, The Christian life consists of going from beginning to beginning through beginnings that have no end. We start over constantly in everything in the spiritual life, and certainly that is so in the life of prayer. The second parable that Jesus tells that we will cover in this lesson is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And again, St. Luke begins this by telling us essentially what the lesson of the parable is. He tells us that Jesus spoke the following to some people who prided themselves on being upright and despised everyone else. Customarily, this is the Jews. It's the Jewish authority, the Jewish elders, as the gospel accounts tell us, that considered themselves upright and better than other people, not only than the Gentiles, of course, but better even than all the other Jews, because they fulfilled the law. They spent their whole day in carrying out the matters of the law in their finest details. They were actually consumed with the fulfillment of the law. So Jesus says two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And of course, the tax collectors were viewed as lowly, as traitors to Judaism, as sinners, as having placed themselves outside the promise, essentially, because they were acting unjustly in their collecting of the taxes. So the Pharisee in the temple stands there and He raises his eyes to heaven, and you will find a phrase in most translations that says, the Pharisee said to himself, the church fathers talk about that phrase. They say it's very interesting that even though he speaks to God, he is talking about his neighbor, accusing his neighbor, condemning his neighbor, but he's speaking to himself. This dialogue of prayer that is going on is not with God. He's talking to himself. It's about himself. He's looking at himself. He's only concerned with himself. He says, I thank you, God. And even in that, there's pride, as if he is offering something of value because it's coming from a person who has so much merit. I thank you, God, that, and by comparison then, that I am not grasping, unjust, adulterous, like, and he speaks of the tax collector, but he begins by saying, like everyone else. He places himself above everyone, and particularly that I am not like this tax collector here. He goes on to say, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all I get. Jesus goes on to say, the tax collector, however, stood some distance off. In other words, as if not to boldly approach God, to draw near to God. He, unlike the Pharisee who who holds himself up to God, the tax collector sort of shrinks back. He bends his head over. He bows because he's filled with not only humility, but With contrition, he is so deeply aware that he is a sinner, that it is a sinner coming before God, entering his presence. Jesus says he didn't even dare to raise his eyes to heaven. 
he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says that the tax collector went home justified. Now, that statement would have shocked many of his listeners, that a tax collector, after that prayer in the temple, would go home justified because he acknowledged that he was a sinner before God and acknowledging it, he asked by beating his breast, he was asking God's forgiveness. And because he was truly acknowledging God, he understands that God is the source of mercy and forgiveness and cleansing. And he turns to God. Pharisee does not ask God to forgive him or to heal him or to cleanse him. He doesn't even think he needs that. So the tax collector goes home justified, while the other does not. This is why Jesus concludes by saying, Everyone, everyone who raises himself up will be humbled, but anyone who humbles himself will be raised up, and God, of course, will raise that person up. We must understand, and this applies to not only to this parable, but to other of the parables and teachings of Jesus in the Gospel. Humility is the foundation of prayer. Humility is the foundation of prayer, the church tells us. Humility is a necessary virtue for growth and holiness. Unlike so many of the other virtues, humility is the one virtue we can't grasp at. We can't decide we're going to acquire humility. The minute we decide that, it slips out of our grasp. It slips away from us. Even in saying, I will do this and therefore be humble. I will pray this way and be humble. There is already pride that is behind that, that's driving it, as if to say we can establish ourselves in humility. We can't do it. St. Augustine says man is a beggar before God. In order to acquire humility, it is something bestowed on us. Humility is a response to God. It is a grace received. We have to understand who we are before God. The word humility is based And the root, humus, which means earth or soil. God creates us from the soil of the earth, that which is under our feet. And the reason we can stand before God when we eventually do is because of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we're just his creatures, completely dependent on him. We have not given ourselves life. We cannot sustain ourselves in life. We cannot even decide to draw the next breath. We have nothing to do with that. We don't have that power. In fact, it is more difficult, it requires more strength for us to stop breathing. It's hard for us to stop breathing or to hold our breath. It's difficult. Breathing is so natural that we don't even think about it. It's pure gift. We can't command our heart to take another beat. All the strength in us cannot decide to make our heart beat one more time. It's outside the reach of man. And those are the simplest things of life. Breathing and our heart beating. We are completely, absolutely, totally dependent on God. Knowing that is the beginning of humility. And then in addition to that, we have to see that we are not perfect creatures. We have a fallen nature. We go before God as sinners. We were created to be perfect children of the Father. But man fell, man sinned. So when we go before God and speak to him, first of all, we are completely dependent. As St. Augustine says, a beggar in every way and form. 
But beyond that, we are sinners. How do we go before God and begin to present any goodness to Him when we come before Him and instantly we become aware of our faults and imperfections and our sinfulness? This then is the key or the clue to being established in humility. It's not something that we seek or grasp at. It's simpler than that. We simply understand we are creatures created by God and dependent upon Him, and we are sinners. But in addition to that, because no one could stand before God, the Lord puts these words of Scripture on the lips of the psalmist and on the lips of others in Scripture that who can stand before God? No one. But knowing He is our Savior, knowing that He promises His love and mercy, it's with that confidence, that hope, That faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior that allows us, that draws us close to Christ so that we go to Him, we stand before Him, and we do as the tax collector does. We beat our breast, we lower our head, we ask God to have mercy on us, for we are sinners. It's a beautiful thing, a profound thing. As the Church tells us, when Jesus, in His public ministry, when He teaches, He calls us to conversion and penance. But one of the keys here, and it certainly applies to this parable, is that conversion and penance in and of itself does not aim at outward works of penance, fasting and mortification, sackcloth and ashes. That conversion doesn't first aim at performing those works or putting on the look of penance, putting on the look of humility, as the Pharisee did, putting on a certain look of I'm trying hard to love God and obey the law. It's the reverse. What we must be concerned about is conversion of heart, that interior, that deep interior conversion. Like the prophet Jeremiah says, don't rend your garments. Circumcise your hearts and not your garments. Because the Jews used to, that was one of their acts of penance, is that they would sort of tear at their garment as an outward expression of of grief, of sorrow over sin, of repentance. Penances that begin as outward works are sterile and false, as the Church tells us. But once we strive for that interior conversion of heart, what happens is that that interior conversion urges expression of the conversion in outward works, in visible signs and gestures and works of penance. That's what happens in the case of the tax collector. It is because of his contrition, because of his awareness of his sinfulness and his conversion of heart, his desire to be cleansed, that he bows low. It's why we would fall on our knees in the presence of Christ. It's why he beats his breast. That beating of the breast is an outward expression that comes about through the interior conversion of heart. So we can't just push off sackcloth and fasting and mortification and so on. The church, in fact, says we need to do these. But we don't do them, we don't begin by saying, I'm going to develop this regimen of asceticism, I'm going to do all these things fast, I'm going to mortify myself, I'm going to this and this and this. It's the other way around. We begin by asking ourselves how we need to strive to purify our hearts according to the law of God, the conversion of heart that we need, and then all the rest after that will follow. It will be expressed in the way we live our life, in the manner in which we pray. So the 
first movement of all prayer petition, as the church tells us, must always be asking forgiveness. We go before the Lord with awareness of who we are as sinners and and an awareness of God as our merciful Savior. We will run across this just in a chapter or two later in the Gospel of St. Luke when Jesus talks about the final turmoil, how the earth will be tumultuous, there will be earthquakes and, and many natural crises and catastrophes, and there will be the upheaval, which will be signs. He says there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and in the earth itself, which are signs of the coming Christ when he comes in power and glory. And he says there will be those who will faint away. They will be so terrified at the coming Christ because they will have that moment of seeing who they are and that they have not had any humility or acknowledgement of the need for a Savior. And there they are now standing before the approaching Savior. And Jesus says they will faint away. They will be so terrified and it's because of that that recognition then, all of a sudden they will see the truth about who we are. And it will be difficult at that point to understand or embrace what they have been rejecting all their life, which is that God has come as our merciful Savior. That's how we can stand in the presence of God now. We go into church, we go before Christ in the tabernacle, and we pray, yes, even boldly, as the saints tell us. But we do that aware that we're sinners because he loves us, because he is all-merciful, because he has poured his life out for us that we might have fullness of life. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Luke from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus. And now, back to Dr. George. The last section of this lesson includes a question with Jesus' journey to Jericho. It begins with his traveling along the road as he's approaching Jericho, and St. Luke records how there is a blind man at the side of the road, And he hears, he feels this crowd going by, and of course he he wants to know what's going on. He says, what's happening? Who's there? And they tell him that Jesus the Nazarene is passing by. And instantly he begins to call out. He hollers out, Jesus, son of David, take pity on me. And they turn and they scold him and shout at him and tell him to be quiet. And he persists. Again, it's that persistence. He wants an encounter with Jesus. And he continues to holler out. He's bold in that reaching out for God's mercy. And Jesus says to bring the man to him. And they do. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? The humility, the simplicity and humility of that question of Jesus. It's a question he asks all of us, really. When we go to him in prayer, anytime we call out to him, there's a way in which God is saying, what do you want me to do for you? Now, if it is for our good, He will answer that prayer on the spot. And part of the mystery of these passages is the fact that God is showing us through these accounts that he goes before us. He is the initiator. When we think that we all of a sudden hear Christ or see Christ or we we sense he's coming into our midst, that now we have something to say. We want to talk to him. We want to encounter him. But God has been working long before that, preparing for that moment. He is the one who has been approaching us 
that whole time. God comes to meet man. So he says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, let me see again. And Jesus says, receive your sight. It's so simple. It kind of amazes us. And in fact, this is one of those moments in scripture where it is so simple, it almost seems uneventful. We almost pass by it. Okay, he gets his sight. And then Jesus goes on to Jericho. What an amazing moment in scripture. When he enters the city of Jericho, he is passing through the town and he says, suddenly there was a man named Zacchaeus. Now he is one of the chief tax collectors and scripture says a very wealthy man. He kept trying to see Jesus, but he was too short in stature. The church fathers speak of this. As we've said before, there is no detail recorded in the scriptures that does not have meaning. In everything God is speaking to us, Now, it was literally so that he was a man who was short in stature. But God willed this and also willed that it be written into Scripture so we can ponder it because the facts of Scripture all point to, they all have spiritual significance. They're signs pointing to other things. They're things that God is inviting us to ponder. The church fathers say he was short in stature and, as St. Luke writes, he could not see Jesus because of the crowd. He was short spiritually in stature. He was spiritually immature. He was spiritually underdeveloped, so to speak. Too short. And he couldn't see Jesus because of the world. He couldn't see Jesus because of everything that was an obstacle. Now, he's very enterprising. He goes and climbs up this tree, a sycamore tree. Now, that's interesting, too. He was one of the senior tax collectors, as scripture tells us, A man of great wealth, he would have been probably magnificently dressed in fine, in exquisite garments. Here is this man, this prominent man in the community, who goes and starts climbing this tree. It's sort of silly to even imagine the scene. He becomes childlike. He becomes like a boy all of a sudden because he wants to see Jesus. Now, this is the beauty of these two. There are others in Scripture, But these two passages are side by side in the Gospel of Luke. The blind man and Zacchaeus when Jesus gets into Jericho. There is a way in which Jesus is passing along the road and we're sitting at the side there, blind or crippled or whatever it happens to be. And all of a sudden, there is something in our soul and we have this sense of what's going on? What's happening? And someone says, Jesus the Nazarene is passing by. It's as if our soul intuits when Jesus is coming near. The same thing happens in in the city of Jericho. In our lives, Jesus is passing through our midst, coming near us. And it is our soul, it's the Holy Spirit that speaks to our soul and prompts us to respond, to inquire, and to go beyond that, to seek that encounter. We want that encounter. Now, it is an encounter that God has been preparing from all time, really. Christ acts in in time and in place. For example, the passage of Nathanael that St. John records in his gospel, how Philip goes and calls him and he comes to Jesus. And Nathanael says to Jesus, how do you know me? Because Jesus has just made a comment about how he's a man without God. He says, how do you know me? He says, before Philip came to call you, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, something happened under the fig tree. We don't know what it was. Perhaps he even had a vision of Christ, the Messiah, and that vision was of Christ. We don't know what it is. 
instantly, Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus says, you are saying that only because I said that I saw you under the fig tree. I mean, what an amazing moment. But God has been preparing for this, and he says, I tell you, you are going to see greater things than that. Now, he says, you are going to see. He must have seen something under the fig tree. He says, you're going to see greater things than that. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. As if God has said all this time he waited for this moment with Nathaniel. And that is the beginning of huge things, of great things. The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, the same thing. She says, how is it that you ask me for water? This was a moment that God had ordained from the beginning of time for this woman that he loved. And she begins, she engages in this dialogue with Jesus. And he says to her, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have been the one to ask. And he would have given you living water. God thirsts that we would thirst for him. And he has these moments. And for most of us, it's not just one in our lives. There are many. But we have to pay attention to them. What happens with Zacchaeus is fascinating. In all probability, he was a corrupt tax collector. How else did he get that rich? How else did he become a senior tax collector? There's not much likelihood that he was what was considered a just tax collector. But in that encounter with Jesus, in that desire, he instantly wants to respond with the fullness of his being. He's already doing it because he climbs up this tree, and he's hanging out of a tree. You notice that scripture is careful to say, because Jesus is passing along the road, St. Luke writes, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up. He knew he was there. He knew he had climbed the tree. He was waiting for him. It was the spirit of Jesus that drew him to climb that tree so he could have a personal encounter with him. He says, when he got to that spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down because I am going to stay at your house today. Now, there's a lot happening here. Yes, he's going to dine at his house, literally. But what Jesus wills is to dwell in the heart of Zacchaeus. And it's already beginning to happen. He is so enthusiastic, but the other Jews start complaining. We're back to the same matter of how can he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And they might have known, there might have been people who had a real grudge against Zacchaeus because maybe they felt he had, you know, all but stolen some of their riches or money because he had extorted too much money from them. And now the Messiah, he says, I'm going to come and dine at your house. And scripture says, but Zacchaeus stood his ground. He said, look, Lord, I'm going to give half my property to the poor. Now, he was a very wealthy man. It'd be like a millionaire right now say, all right, just on the spot. I'm going to give half of everything I own to the poor. Now, that's a very good start. He obviously has heard Jesus preaching. He knows something about Jesus, and he knows something about how to respond. I give of this moment half of everything to the poor. And then he goes on to say, and if I have defrauded anyone, I will pay back four times the amount. That was according to the law, to pay back four times. Now, maybe, we don't know for a fact, different commentators through the centuries talk about how corrupt or just Zacchaeus may have been. In all likelihood, he was corrupt. But there's some who argue it, it almost seems as if he 
is claiming that he doesn't feel he has defrauded anyone seriously. But again, we go back to that same mystery. If we were to go before the Lord and say, well, Lord, you know, I haven't been a bad person the last 20 years. The Lord could just enlighten and open up our hearts and say, well, let me show you exactly the person you've been the last 20 years. And we would be dismayed. We would be shocked. But God is so gentle and caring. He allows Zacchaeus to declare this. And indeed, he would have followed through on it. The tense used in the Greek indicates it's a present tense, as if he is saying, of this moment, I do this. It is done. Consider it done. One of the church fathers says that in in saying he will pay back fourfold anything in restitution that he has defrauded someone, that he consigned himself to poverty in that moment. He would have been flat broke because he wouldn't have had anything left because he probably then would have made good on that. He's already given away half. And the other half would have been eaten up by what he had to pay back in restitution. He doesn't care. He is only too happy and willing of a moment, immediately, on the spot, to give everything away so that he can have Jesus in his life. It's a beautiful response. It's a beautiful response. What does Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to this house. He declares him saved. He declares him saved that day because of his response. He says, for this man too is, present tense, he is a son of Abraham. The Jews would have liked to think of the tax collectors as outside the promise because of their sin, that they had severed themselves from the covenant through their lifestyle. Jesus says, for this man is the son of Abraham. Now, if we conclude this question with just a few words on the whole matter of restitution, and you have many of the readings on this from the Catechism, because of sin, We are obligated to make reparation or restitution for the sins of our life, especially the grave ways in which we have violated our neighbor, whether it's through different ways of stealing, ruining a person's reputation, injuries caused to another, whatever. And the church speaks about all this. When we confess our sins and receive absolution, we are cleansed of them. We are forgiven them. The sin does not remain. But what we have to understand is there is a temporal punishment that remains, and it's part of the wisdom of God, because he uses that reparation. He calls us to try to repair, the word reparation comes from that, to try to repair or atone for, expiate, the sins, to give something back in justice. Justice demands this. Now, it helps. I mean, we are wounded through sin. And by giving reparation, we are actually helping, we are collaborating with God in the healing of our soul and rooting out sin in our soul. It's a beautiful thing. We have to remember on the one hand, only Christ atones for sin. Only Christ repairs for all the sin in the world. He alone. But we become configured to Christ and we can collaborate in that reparation. The part we have to pay, the restitution we have to make, It's minimal. It's small. It's nothing compared to what we owe. As St. Thomas Aquinas says, even, even a venial sin against God is infinite in that we are offending an infinite being. So it has an infinite value to it. No one can pay back what is due to God for any sin we commit, even the smallest of our sins. Christ has paid the price. He is repaired. But there is a good 
in temporal punishment. If we could only see it that way, we tend to look at it, again, through human eyes. We think of it as something negative, something bad. We even call it temporal punishment. That's sort of an unfortunate word, punishment. It is punishment in terms of justice, but because of Christ, he has turned suffering into a blessing. He has turned sacrifice into a blessing and into our sanctification. And that's part of the mystery of it here. And so I invite you to take the time to read those beautiful paragraphs in the Catechism on restitution. You know, sometimes people say, how can we repair for anything? Only God can do that. In the natural world, we all know that we can excuse another person's debt to us. We can just say, you know, you don't have the money or whatever. That's all right. Just forget it. I let it go. I free you of that. We can go so far as to pay the debt of one person to another person, having nothing to do with us. We can pay this person's debt to that person and satisfy that debt. If we can do that in the natural order, why can we not collaborate with Christ in the supernatural order? Because we are members of his body. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. What we do, we do through with and in Christ, and Christ does in us. The power of restitution or reparation, which can be done through works, prayers, offerings, service to neighbor, even just enduring injustice and forms of suffering in our life, all this we can offer back to God in reparation for the sins of our past life and in reparation for the sins of the world. There's so much power in this. It says, if God says, here, give me this little bit that you have, and I will multiply it a hundredfold. He gives us this offering, and he takes and completes it. He fulfills it and does something great with it. When we do that, we make a difference in the world, but also we collaborate with God in the healing of sin in our own hearts. We are restoring, we are correcting, we are turning things around and making things right. And so in that temporal punishment, that too, in that, lies also part of the work of our sanctification. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the Gospel of St. Luke. Dr. George will be covering the following three topics. From Luke 19.11 through chapter 21. The authority of Christ and his church, his heavenly in origin. Second, Christ's warning about the last days. And third, the Psalms teach us how to pray. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. Music